We're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Acts, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 7. So let's have God's Word open us up to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be making a few jumps, but if we stay together uh, or follow along with the text above, we will be okay. Acts chapter 7, and when you're there, I'll ask that you please rise for the reading of God's Word. After we read verse 1, we will be making a jump to verse 35. Now this is the word of the Lord. And the high priest said, are these things so? Verse 35. This Moses, this is now Stephen speaking, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent us both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Continuing in chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, So far in our studies in Acts, we have heard about the first sermon in the church. Uh, We saw the first baptisms in the church, the first miracle in the church, 
the first ordained deacons in the church. And now in today's passage, we have the first martyr in the church. Now, before we get into today's text, I just want to share a few things regarding this. Uh, Just three uh, points. First, Stephen's martyrdom, as we find here in Acts 7, is not a one-off incident. Uh, Starting from this point until the next 250 years, the early church will continue to be persecuted for their faith and killed for their confession. And history tells us that before their execution, Christians were often given the choice to denounce their faith and live or confess Jesus and die. Now, we don't know how many Christians decided to live by turning away from Jesus, but we do have numerous accounts of Christians who died so that they could truly live. So Stephen was the first, but he certainly was not the last. The second thing that I want to note is Luke, as he writes the Gospel of Luke and Acts, You know, it's noteworthy that he is writing both to Christians and non-Christians. In other words, he's writing to encourage Christians, and he's also writing to introduce Christianity to the outside world. It may be because I lack faith, but I'm not sure if this is the best way to encourage Christians and to introduce Christians. Christianity to those on the outside. Saying, hey, come, believe in Jesus. You'll receive eternal life. But there's a chance. There's a chance. There's a chance that you might die for your faith. I think we have to appreciate that Luke doesn't shy away from telling these stories. The third thing I want to note is that Again, starting here and throughout the history of the church, we will find that martyrdom is a part of our history. The church was born out of severe persecution, and in the midst of that, many believers were faithful unto the point of death. And while this may seem far and distant from us at the present moment, The call, nevertheless, is the same for all of us. We are called to come and die to find that I may truly live. Now, having said that, we'll get into today's text. And I want to ask just two questions as we have read from Acts 7 and 8. The two questions I want to ask is this. What can we learn from Stephen's speech? And second, what can we learn from his demeanor? So first, what can we learn from Stephen's speech? If we look at the end of Acts 6, we find that Stephen is ministering in the church with signs and wonders, with power and grace. Now, there arises a group of men from different backgrounds, and they they get into a debate with Stephen, and they find quickly that they are no match for his wisdom. And so, they decide to falsely accuse him of two very serious crimes. These are the two things that they accuse him of. First, in verse 11, they say, 
that Stephen is cursing God and Moses. He's blaspheming against Moses and God. And second, in verse 14, he says that they say that Stephen is claiming that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and all of its customs. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, you'll know that these two uh, claims are very serious offenses. Moses and God are the two most important figures for the Israelites, and the temple is central to Israel's faith. And so when they accuse him of these two things, they're accusing him of very grave and serious offenses. So, having been accused of these things, Stephen gets up, and he delivers a speech. Now, I don't think this was a sermon. This, I don't think this was a sermon because, you know, there is no call to repentance or an invitation to accept Jesus, like in the case with Peter. Stephen's speech, it ends with him just condemning the people. It reads more like a prophetic confrontation than a sermon. So Stephen gets up, and in this lengthy speech, he responds to each of these accusations by retelling the history of Israel. And I want you to look at what Stephen says, starting in verse 35. He says this, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Verses 39 and 40, Stephen also says, Our fathers refused to obey him, speaking of Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. You see what Stephen is doing here in his speech? See, these people had accused Stephen of cursing Moses and God. But what does Stephen do? He turns this accusation around and he reveals that it was actually them, that they were the ones who always, from the beginning, rejected Moses. And God. He was accused of blaspheming Moses and God, and Stephen says, listen, no, let's go back to history. He's saying, let's be honest. We, as a people, you and I, our forefathers, we have always been disobedient towards God. We have always refused and rejected God. And by rejecting Jesus, you are doing it all over again. See, Stephen is calling the people out on their hypocrisy and their own spiritual blindness. You see, these people have rewritten their own history with a rosy brush. They are pretending to be protectorates of Moses when, in fact, they always rejected and refused him. Now, growing up, uh, you know, we're taught at a very young age that the one person you should never talk bad about is someone else's mother. Right? You never cross the line of speaking bad about someone else's mother. If someone ever says something about your mother, you know those are fighting words. But here's the honest truth. You cannot defend your mother in front of others 
while at the same time disrespecting her inside your own home. It's dishonest. If you disparage your own mother, if you disrespect her, and if you treat her horribly, but take offense when others do it, you are a hypocrite. I learned this lesson early when I was in elementary school. A fellow classmate called me a derogatory uh, term. He called me a chink. I didn't care, but he called my mother a chink. And that's when, you know, the gloves come off. It's weird because I accepted that. And of course, if I'm a chink, then my mother is too. But for some reason, that just offended me so much. No, don't talk about my mother. So we got into a fight. We went to the principal's office. And later that evening, I was explaining to my mother why I got into the fight. I said, my, this, this classmate, talked bad about you, and I was defending you. And she didn't miss a heartbeat. She responded right away. She looked back and she said, you know what? I don't care what others say about me and how they treat me, but I do care about what you say, what you say about me and how you treat me in our own home. You see, the Israelites in today's passage are accusing Stephen of blaspheming Moses and God. But Stephen, after giving this lengthy history lesson, is saying, no, let's be honest. We have always done it. We have always refused God. We have always refused his prophet. And now by refusing Jesus, we are repeating this all over again. You know, I wonder, church, haven't we done the same thing today? As Christians, don't we cry from the mountaintops about how God is being disparaged in society today? We complain about how he's being taken out of schools. We're staunch defenders of Christian ethics and morals in the public sphere. And we are deeply concerned that society is eroding as God is taken out of the dialogue. You know, yesterday I was having dinner with a friend and family members, and he shared how his daughter came up to him one day, who's in the third grade. He came, uh, she came up to him, and she told him that two of her friends said that they were pansexual. At first, we didn't understand what this meant. We're like, what is pansexual? And the students explained, third graders explained how pansexual means that they like both guys and girls. And then we asked the question, well, isn't that bisexual? And the father explained, no, now you have to say you're pansexual because bisexual means it's just binary. You're a guy and a girl. But now because there's so many different types of genders and people identify in so many different ways, we have to say that people are pansexuals. And here we were, just uh, two men just confused, wondering what is going on. But here's the honest truth. Church, we can pretend to be protectorates of the truth. The truth of the reality is, the truth is, the fact of the matter is, we go on every day as a community, as individual believers, every day refusing and rejecting this same truth in our everyday life. 
Church, we play the same card. We look back at our past with rose-tinted glasses, thinking that we are better and greater than we actually are and were. And Stephen's speech is calling us out this morning and warning us against this. He says this, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. See, Stephen is, he's, he's redirecting this accusation. Hey, guys, 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 let's be honest. We've done the same thing. And by ultimately rejecting Jesus, you are doing it again. The second accusation against Stephen was that um, they were claiming that Stephen said that the temple was going to be destroyed by Jesus. And he also responds to this in his speech. He begins his speech with Abraham. Now, you know if someone begins their speech with Abraham, it's going to be a long one. And Stephen's speech in Acts is actually the longest speech um, you know, deacons have a way of just going on and on and on. You know, during the meetings, we, I, I know that. But he, this deacon, he gets up and he begins with Abraham. And, he's, and he recounts from the very beginning about how God was working through the people. And he starts with Abraham and he goes all the way down to Solomon. But the emphasis that Stephen puts it is that wherever these people went, God was with them. If you look, he talks about Abraham in Haran, Acts 7, uh, verse 2. He says this, the glory of God appeared to him. Where was Abraham? In Haran. And when Abraham was called to go out, God was with him. The glory of God followed him. Again, Joseph, he was sold to Egypt, but Acts 7, verse 9 says that God was with Joseph. Where? In Egypt, in prison. Moses at Mount Sinai, Acts 7, 30 to 31. God spoke to Moses at Sinai. He appeared to him in a burning bush. His presence was among Moses, with him. Joshua in the wilderness, in verse 45, he speaks about how God was with the people, how he was fighting for and by the people. And he goes on and on and on until he gets to Solomon, to the temple. He says that Solomon built the temple, but look at what Stephen quotes. He quotes a psalm. Yes, Solomon built this temple, but this is what God says in the psalms. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? In other words, what is Stephen doing here in his speech? He's drawing attention to the fact that even before the temple, God was with his people. When they were sojourners in the land, when they were wandering in the wilderness, when they were imprisoned in Egypt, when they were fighting and conquering the land, God's presence was with them always, with or without the temple. And while the temple was important for the people, the Israelites, their fixation and their obsession with it caused them to miss the most important truth 
that God's greatest presence was not the temple, but Jesus himself. See, Stephen is making the point, going all the way back to the Old Testament. Yes, the temple represented God's presence, but we know that wherever God, wherever his people was, were, God was with them. And ultimately, we see this theology put to the test in the next few chapters when the church is ultimately scattered because of persecution. Up until this point, the church, yes, they believed that Jesus was the greatest presence of God, but still, they're centered around Jerusalem. Still, the early church, they're centered around the temple. They're following the temple schedule. They're in Jerusalem, and but when they are forced to leave, this theology that God's presence was in Jesus is now put to the test. As they're now scattered and forced to leave the vicinity of the temple. And later when the temple is destroyed, the believers are put to the test to see if this conviction will hold true. Will God be with them wherever they go? Stephen's speech in Acts 7 is pinching a nerve here. That which was most central to the people, Moses and the temple, Stephen is unveiling an uncomfortable truth about them both. He's saying that God's temple, God's presence was never about the temple and that they were never as good as they pretended to be. And by rejecting Jesus, they were continuing, they were perpetuating this sin. And this made them furious. This made them angry. Church, what does this speech teach us? I think it teaches us that we are not good as we think we are. That our past is not as romantic as we remember it to be. It shows us that of all the uh, disappointments that we have towards the world and the erosion of Christianity, that things were never as good as we remember them to be. Yet, the speech teaches us that we are not broken or sinful beyond salvation. The only way to break the cycle of sin, spiritual blindness, and hypocrisy is to once again come to the cross and truly confess, that was for me. That's Stephen's speech. The second question, what, is, what about his demeanor? What can we learn from that? Well, I'll be brief on this point. We find that Stephen's speech is, is difficult to listen to. The truths are just sharp. They are piercing. But consider his demeanor, because it's quite the opposite. Stephen's demeanor is gracious and inviting. Acts 6.15, right before he's, uh, right after he's accused and taken before um, the priest, it's, Acts 6.15 says that his face was like the face of an angel. And when he's about to die, when he's being stoned to death, Acts 7.45-55 says, and they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. You know what Acts says about Stephen? It says that he was full of wisdom, right? He had a that they couldn't debate with this individual. He had just this wisdom about him, these cutting words, these piercing words. But it also says that Stephen was filled with grace. In other words, Stephen's message was uncompromising. But we find his character and his demeanor is welcoming. And church, I think this serves as a good example of how we ought to engage others. How we as a church ought to engage the world with an uncompromising message of truth, but gracious and welcoming in our character. Paul Tripp, in his book, uh, Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer, says that if we want to be gospel-proclaiming, gospel-sharing individuals in a community, there are three things that we need to get down. First, we need to get the message right. But he also says the means. We need to get the means right. How do we share this message? And third, he says we need to get the character right. We can't just have the message of Jesus, but we also need to embody the character of Jesus. And we find this in Stephen's example today. As stated above, in Acts 7, Stephen, he, this is not a one-off case. Starting from Acts 7, the next 250 years, he's followed by hundreds and thousands of martyrs who died in a very similar way, with an uncompromising message, with an unshakable conviction, yet with humbleness and meekness that even those around them saw that there was something truly remarkable about Christians. And Stephen, while he was the first martyr in the church, he was certainly not the one to pioneer this. While he was the first martyr, he wasn't the benchmark. That was Jesus. The aim of this passage, I believe, in Acts 7, is for us not to be amazed at Stephen and the life he lived, the message he shared, and the death he died. But the aim of this passage is to see the one whom Stephen is emulating. Luke wants to see, Luke wants us to see how much this death resembles Jesus' death. Do you recall how John in his gospel introduces Jesus? He says that he was full of grace and truth. A very similar way like Stephen, filled with wisdom and grace. Jesus also was accused of very similar, uh, Jesus was also accused of similar charges. Blaspheming against Moses, against God, and claiming to destroy the temple. You know, in Acts 7.56, before Stephen is uh, stoned to death, he looks up into heaven and he says this, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you remember Jesus in Mark 14 as he's standing trial before his death? He says very similar words. He says this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man 
seated at the right hand of power and the coming with the clouds of heaven. Finally, when Jesus is on the cross, he utters seven sayings, two of which were, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And as he dies, he says, receive my spirit. Same words that Stephen repeats as, as he is being stoned to death. Friends, church, this story reminds us once again that the church, the ministry of the church, is the continuation of Jesus' ministry. That disciples are called to follow Jesus. They're, they're called to follow Jesus in every single way possible. Not just in his life, but also in his death. Jesus laid down his life for our sins. He paid a debt that we could not pay. And now with thanksgiving, church, we are called to follow him even to the point of death. This is why martyrdom is a part of the history of the church. Martyrdom is not about self-glorification, but it's about self-denial and discipleship. It's the way to know Jesus in every possible way to be like him in every possible way, in his resurrection, in his suffering, in his death, and in his life. Today, I want to conclude uh, the message by introducing or talking about a female uh, by the name of Vibia Perpetua. Uh, she also, like Stephen, was arrested for her faith and killed by being thrown to wild beasts in A.D. 203. Now, Perpetua, it's, um, she has a very interesting story because she was an aristocrat, born in a very noble family, and so she actually had the ability to read and write. And while she was imprisoned, she kept a diary. She kept a journal. Her writings were preserved, translated over and over again, and it's actually come down to us uh, in the present day. And so we actually have a journal of a woman who was at the age of 22 killed for her faith shortly after Stephen. Perpetua, uh, she writes this journal, and then a church father, an early church father by the name of Tertullian, uh, he actually picks up on this journal um, and he, they were part of the same, uh, same like sect, same religious uh, group. And after having gathered eyewitnesses, he also tells the story of her actual death. So there are a couple of just passages that I want to read from her diary and from Tertullian's, um, his writing of her death. This is when she's under house arrest. She writes this. While we were still under house arrest, my father earnestly tried to dissuade me with words and kept seeking to break my resolution out of his great love for me. Father, I said, let me give you an example. Do you see this vessel lying here, this little pitcher or whatever? Yes, I see it, he replied. Could you call it by another name than what it really is? No. Perpetua says, it's the same with me. I can't be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. That word Christian so infuriated my father that he lunged at me like he was going to tear out my eyes, but he just shook me and he went away defeated. As a side note, Perpetua's father was not a believer. 
She continues as she writes in her journal about the trial. She writes, we were taken to the main public square. Everyone with me confessed their faith when asked. Then it was my turn, and at that moment, my father appeared there with my baby boy. Perpetua, at the age of 22, had just given birth. And her father, she writes, he dragged me away from the steps and urged, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your own baby. The governor, Hilarion, saw this, and he said to me, spare your gray-haired father, spare your infant son, just make a sacrifice for the emperor's well-being. And I replied, I won't. Are you a Christian? Hilarion asked. I am a Christian, I declared. My father kept trying to dissuade me, so at last Hilarion ordered him to be thrown down and beaten with a rod. My father's suffering hurt me as if I myself had been beaten. It broke my heart to see him endure such misery in his old age. And so Hilarion sentenced us all to face the wild beasts. Rejoicing, we went down into the dungeon. And now Tertullian, he writes about the execution, what happened on that day. At last, the day of their victory dawned. He calls it victory. The martyrs proceeded cheerfully from the prison to the amphitheater as though they were marching to heaven. Their appearance was honorable. And if they happened to tremble, it was not from fear, but they were trembling because of joy. Perpetua went along at a calm pace with a radiant countenance. She was a true wife of Christ, beloved of God. The intense expression in her eyes made all the onlookers avert their gaze. Felicity was there too. Felicity was a slave woman who was pregnant and had just given birth. He says, Felicity was there too, rejoicing to have given birth safely so that she could face the beasts. She was going from one kind of blood to another, from a midwife to a gladiator. Perpetua began to sing a psalm, and the martyrs gave thanks indeed that they had attained a share in the Lord's suffering. For Perpetua and Felicity, the devil had arranged a very fierce cow. This wasn't the normal custom, but it was done to mimic the women's sex. So they were stripped naked and draped in nets. Then they brought them into the arena but the spectators were horrified when they saw one was a delicate young woman and the other had just come from childbirth with her breasts still lactating. So the authorities put loose tunics on the women. The cow tossed Perpetua first and she landed on her hip. Sitting up, she immediately straightened her tunic where it was ripped along the side to cover her thighs, for Perpetua cared more about modesty than pain. Then she sought her hairpin and straightened her disheveled hair. She believed that it was improper for a martyr to die with her hair unbound, which would make it look like she was mourning in the moment of her triumph. So she got to her feet, seeing Felicity crumpled, her form lying on the ground, Perpetua went over and offered a hand, helping Felicity to stand. And the two of them stood there side by side. With the brutality of the crowd satisfied, the two martyrs were brought back into the gate of life. Perpetua falls asleep, 
she wakes up. And to everyone's amazement, she asks the question, when are we going to be thrown to that cow or whatever it is? And when she heard that it already happened, she couldn't believe it until she noticed the gashes on her body and the rips in her clothing. Then Perpetua calls for her brother, and he speaks with the people around him. She says, stand firm in the faith, and all of you must love one another. Do not let our martyrdom be a stumbling block to you. And Tertullian goes on to explain how she actually died. As a gladiator, as a soldier came to actually, to, to now give that final blow of thrusting the sword in her, she actually takes the sword with her own hands. As a gladiator's hand is shaking this young, inexperienced man, and she directs it to her throat. And Tertullian writes, because this woman couldn't be killed unless she herself allowed it. Stories like this we find throughout the history of the church. August, uh, Augustine uh, was also from the same area or region of Perpetua. Upon hearing of this story of Perpetua and Felicity, he says, oh, these women... They were actually seeking eternal happiness, a play on their actual names, perpetual felicity. They were seeking eternal happiness. We find stories of this over and over again. Why? Not for self-glorification, not because these people were noble and amazing and remarkable people, but because they were disciples of Jesus. They followed Jesus in his life and in his death. There was an unwavering conviction that they had. They shared this message that's, that pierced the hearts of people. Yet when they faced death, they did so in the manner of Christ, with humility, meekness, with a glowing joy about them. And church, while this experience may seem so far off from us today, the call once again is for us to follow Jesus in every single possible way. Church, will we hear this call this morning and answer in a similar manner? Would you join me in prayer at this time?